Um, we are, uh, for those of you who are new to Glad Tidings or visiting or weren't here last week, um, last year, about this time and uh, into the new year, this new year, 2018, um, we went through the process of working through our mission, vision, and core values. And uh, so over these um, last week and the next three, uh, this week and two more, um, we're, we're talking about our mission, vision, core values. Last week we did our mission statement. Today we're going to talk about our three uh, pillars of vision. Um, we're going to get to that in a moment, but let's stand together. And the text that we're going to read today and that we're going to work from um, is uh, a very familiar one. And it is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16 verses 13 to 18, and you'll, many of us will recognize these words. I'm reading the blue, there's just two slides, and then you will read the white. This is what it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barger. The flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are here, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Father, again, we thank you for your love for us in Jesus Christ and the way that you have demonstrated it so generously, so extravagantly, and for the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that takes everything that you have accomplished in Jesus and makes it available and applicable to our lives. And so we pray today that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and particularly... As we go out from this place today and into our daily lives of Monday to Saturday, that we would live out your truth, that we would live out the hope, the living hope of Jesus Christ in practical, meaningful, tangible ways. May Christ be praised, and we ask this in his name. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Imagine going to bed on October the 4th and waking up on October 15th. Just in eight hours sleep, we lose 10 days. Now, I think that we can all imagine workers paid by the hour were not that happy. It was money out of their pockets. But everyone was frightened, scared. People wondered what it meant that 10 days could have just disappeared. Days had been so dependable, and now in a flash, 10 of them were gone. And people could not get their minds off of this. Now, this isn't a scene from a sci-fi movie. This actually happened in 1582. 
the genius mathematician Christopher Clavius discovered an error in the Julian calendar. And this miscalculation put the calendar off by, get this, 0.002% per year. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but Clavius realized that over the years, it amounted to 10 full days. That this small percentage amount took off more than a week from the calendar. And so under the leadership of Pope Gregory VIII, a new calendar bearing the Pope's name was unveiled. People went to sleep on October the 4th of the Julian calendar and woke up October the 15th of the Gregorian calendar. This was a huge change. And this is how Andrew Root begins his book, Faith Foundations, or Formation in the Secular Age. We live today in the 21st century, in 2018, in the midst of the, one of the greatest transitions that we have ever known where the framework on which the Western society was built is beginning to shift. Most of us probably don't realize that we are living in many ways with a new calendar. And like people of the 16th century, we are living in a time like no other. A time of phenomenal change where the speed of it is breathtaking and we can hardly keep up to it. It's almost impossible. Now I want you to keep that story in mind that concept in mind as we move forward this morning. Now, in our text, in the text that we just read together, Jesus asks two questions. The first question that he asks is this. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course, like then, like today, People have varying opinions on who Jesus is. Some people say he was a good man. Others say he was a good guy. Some people say that he was a miracle worker. Some people say that he was a great teacher. And still others say that he was a great prophet. But then comes Jesus' second question that is more important to us than the first question. And Jesus' second question is this. Who do you say that I am? So I want you to pause for a moment. And I want us to ask ourselves this question. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do I say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And I want us to think now for a moment about our answer to Jesus' question. Because our answer is a very important one. To you, to me, to us as individuals, personally, it is a life-changing, a life-altering answer. Because 
what I believe, what you believe, what we believe about Jesus is in fact powerful, it's significant, and it affects how we live. And if your answer and my answer is the same as Peter's answer, and we would say that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, then our answer, my answer, your answer, has significant implications, serious consequences attached to it. It is significant to me, to you, to us personally and individually. The answer to the question is significant for his church. And it's significant to this church. It's significant to our culture. And it is indeed significant to our world. Who do you say that I am? Who do we say that Jesus is? The question is a probing one because the answer carries with it consequences, implications. Because if our answer is the same as Peter's answer, then we believe that Jesus is the hope of the world. Nothing and no one else is. And that includes the church, and that includes this church. Because Jesus is not only the hope of the world, he's the hope of the church. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I think most of us know that there's a fair amount of controversy around that verse in our text. I believe that Jesus is not talking about Peter as the rock, but himself as the rock. I think my friend, Father Jim Hutton, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church would probably differ with me on that. We'll fight about that later. But whatever way we answer or respond to whoever it is that the church is built on, it suits our purposes this morning. One of the greatest concerns for most churches today, including this one, is the number of people who are leaving or have left the institutional church. Especially the loss and the disaffiliation of young adults. It is a topic that is being talked about across all denominations. And people are not necessarily walking away from faith and spirituality, but they are walking away from the institutional church. And this is what is known as the rise of the nuns. Now, nuns refers to the variable that is selected on a survey when people are asked 
for their religious affiliation. So people will check the box that reads none when they are asked to affiliate themselves with a religion. Or do they affiliate themselves with any religion at all and they respond by none? A couple of years ago, Pew Research did a study and released their findings to reveal that there was a 7% drop in religious affiliations that young people who once would have checked mainline denomination, Roman Catholic or evangelical and so on were now selecting none to describe and define their religion. I read somewhere, and I looked for the source and I couldn't find it, I read somewhere that there are 11 million Christians, people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who do not attend a church. They profess faith in Jesus Christ, but do not attend a church. In the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, I have discovered in my own research that in the last 20 years, in the last 20 years, the PAOC has only grown by 1,700 people. That's right, 1,700, 1,700 people. Now, a number of people have died, of course, and moved on and whatever, but over the last 20 years, we can only identify 170 people who are new to the Pentecostal Sandies of Canada. And that's good news. Because we're one of the few denominations that's actually flatlined. The largest denomination, evangelical denomination in the United States, the Southern Baptist Conference or Convention, last year alone lost 200,000 members. As to the reason why, particularly with young people, the, the answers of why they are drifting away from the church and some of them are drifting away from faith are myriad. Some people say the reason is the church's irrelevance to the popular culture. Other people say that it's the church's hypocrisy. And still more say that it's the church's reluctance or inability to deal with the difficult topics of the day. Like science and religion and abuse and sexual orientation and racism. And still more suggest that it's spiritual apathy and lethargy. And still others say that it is busyness and weariness, etc., etc. But it's not just the young who are walking away from church that fit into this scenario. And the rise of the nuns is scary for us because if interest in the church is declining, and it is, then what about the future of the church? And what about the future of Glad Tidings Church? We're not immune. Without the next generation, there is no future. 
The church that does not have young has no future. Put positively, a church with the future is a church with young families and strong children's youth and young adults ministries. That's the future of the church. But that's not what our text says. Our text says clearly that the hope of the church is not an age demographic, young, middle-aged, or old. That the hope of the church's future, the hope of this church's future, is not young adults or youth or children. That's a burden too great for any of us to bear. And don't get me wrong, and I think you will see in a few moments, and anybody that knows me knows that, I'm conv- that I am absolutely committed to reaching the next generation. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's get something very clear, and let's get something right at the start before we move on. It's what our text says. That the hope of the church, the future of the church, rests on Jesus Christ alone. He is the hope of the future of the church, and he is the hope of the future of this church, Jesus Christ. That's why the answer to Jesus' question is so important. Who do you say that I am? That the hope and the future of the church, this church, is in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That you and I can trust Jesus for the future of his church. And you and I can trust Jesus for the future of this church. But that brings us to this. And that is the task of the church, the task of our church of glad tidings, which brings us to the mission, vision, core value piece for today, our three pillars of vision. Now, before we get started, they are not in any particular order. I've just ordered them the way they are because that's the way they are. But the first one is this, is to be missional. What do we mean by missional? It means this, demonstrating and announcing the love of Jesus Christ in our neighborhoods and communities in meaningful, practical, and tangible ways. That our focus on mission is built on and built around our answer to Jesus' question, who do you say that I am? Because the answer profoundly affects us becoming and being a missional congregation. So two more questions. First, why did the missional emphasis come about 
Or why did the missional wave rise in the first place? The answer to that question is simple. The answer is because we have and had lost our way when it comes to mission. Missional is a way of correcting the inertia and the inactivity within the church regarding God's mission. Missional is the antidote to being insular, of being inward-looking as opposed to being outward-focused. Missional is a wake-up call to the church, to our church that is too occupied with ourselves rather than the community that surrounds it. And I've learned that something that something every church continually has to push back against is missional drift. That the first thing that is lost on most congregations is mission. And if it's what we, it's what Glad Tidings Church, it's what we have to fight against, or fight for rather. It's what we have to fight for as a congregation, missional faithfulness. Second question, what does it mean to be missional? Well, to be missional is to be an extension Notice the language. To be missional is to be an extension of the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. Now, I've told you this before, and I'm going to tell you again, so I realize I'm repeating myself. There is only one ministry and one mission in the universe. And that is the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. You and I do not have a ministry. I do not have a ministry. This is not my church. This is not your church. This is not our church. This is Jesus' church. And all that I am doing this morning is participating and entering into the ministry of Jesus to this congregation by the agency and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got a prayer team that's praying in the back right now. They don't even know if I'm talking about. You know what they're doing? They don't have a ministry of prayer. They are entering into Jesus' ministry of prayer through the power and the agency of the Spirit. Life groups. When life group leaders lead and host life groups, it's not their ministry. It's not our ministry. We are entering into Jesus' ministry. And it doesn't matter whether you are dealing with children or you're dealing with youth or you're dealing with young adults or middle-aged people or senior citizens. It doesn't matter if we're teaching Sunday school or we're shoveling driveways or we're caring for our neighbors and our neighborhoods and our communities. We are, we are participating in Jesus' ministry to this church, to this community, to this world. There is only one ministry in the world. And that is the ministry and the mission of Jesus Christ. And so we endeavor 
to participate in the mission of God in, through, and as Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. The question is not, does glad tidings have more members or attenders? The question is, does Jesus Christ have more followers as a result of Glad Tidings Church's influence? And if Jesus was about the Father's will, if Jesus was about God's mission, then to be missional is to be intentional and to be deliberate about entering into Jesus' purpose for this congregation. It's about the kingdom of God. It's about loving and serving our neighborhood and our communities, our city, where we do it personally and we do it congregationally. It's about being salt and light. It means that we proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with words. And secondly, that we demonstrate the love of Jesus in physical, practical, tangible, meaningful ways. And the culture that we live in, whether we like it or not, more often than not, the, the second one must precede the first one. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the answer to Jesus' question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God has significant implications for us when it comes to carrying out the mission in greater Sudbury. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God? Okay, hold on to that. That brings us to our second pillar, discipleship. Now, if I talk about faith formation, instead of discipleship, I mean the same thing, or formation of faith. And what we mean by discipleship is this, developing people as authentic and effective followers of Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? When we talk about discipleship, we're not just talking about making people converts to Christianity. We're not just talking about getting people saved and getting them to come to an altar or sign on the dotted line. We're talking about going beyond that and making them fully faithful followers of Jesus Christ, disciples. You see, our struggle... Our struggle with discipleship, with faith formation, is a historical one. The truth is that we have not been very good at it. And I don't mean just Glad Tidings Church. I mean the evangelical community as a whole. We're great at getting people saved. I mean, we're really good at getting people to make a decision for Christ. But we are not and have not been good at making those converts into fully functioning disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, discipleship 
is about the formation of our faith. And discipleship can be seen in the difference between belief and faith. Belief and faith are not the same things. They're different. And the difference, the distinction between the two matters. Belief is our intellectual, mental understanding of biblical, spiritual, and religious concepts like doctrines and truths that we hold to be biblical and true. Faith is the orientation of our lives. Faith determines the shape of our lives and how we live. Belief is a noun. But faith is more a verb than it is a noun. Belief is what we say we believe. But faith puts what we believe into action. I mean, we can believe that a, that a, a thing, a doctrine, a person is what they say or what it is, but it will never affect our behavior or motivate us to do something. <clears throat> you can believe, I can believe, that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the Son of the living God, till the cows come home. But it may never affect my life. Faith is active. Faith gets up and it gets going. Now, most of us are familiar with John chapter 14, verse 6. And in our pluralistic world where people are saying that there are many ways to God, John chapter 14, verse 6 has become even more important for evangelicals. But I want you to set aside for a second and think of the idea of the way differently. Now, this is what John 14, 6 says for those of you that aren't totally familiar. And Jesus said to him, to Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, how are we doing? You doing okay? Okay, now I want you to put your seatbelt on. I want to drop something on you. And I want you to follow me. You're a pretty smart lot, so I think that'll be pretty easy for you. But I want you to listen now to this for a moment. Thinking about the way. Many of us, our understanding, our notion, our idea of the truth goes all the way back past Jesus to a man by the name of Aristotle. Now follow me. And what we have in evangelicalism is an Aristotelian understanding of truth. And you're saying, well, what does that mean? Here's what it means. Aristotle taught this, that truth is something we know. We know. It's like belief. We know it. 
that we want to know if something is true. This is belief. We know it. Our idea of truth as something we know doesn't come from Jesus. And it doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from the ancient Greeks, Aristotle particularly. Now here's the catch. If our if we only understand the Gospels, the way that Aristotle taught truth as something we know, then we'll really never understand what the Bible means and the Gospels mean by truth. Because the truth of the Gospels is not like the understanding of truth with Aristotle. Jesus is our concept of truth. Not a set of doctrines, or in our case, the Pentecostal Sundays of Canada, a statement of fundamental and essential truths that believe that we believe, but our concept is of truth, is Jesus Christ as a way to be, as a way to live. You follow me so far? Truth is not something we just know. But truth is a way that we live. And when Jesus says the words, I am the way, what Jesus is telling us, not only is he truth to know, but he is the way in which we are to live out the truth. By the way, do you know what the first Christians were called before they were called Christians? Do you know? They were called the way. The people belonging to the way. And Luke uses the words or the statement, the way, six times in the book of Acts. And the most famous one, of course, is in Acts chapter 24, where Paul is standing before Felix and he says this, but I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect. I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. It wasn't until Acts chapter 11 in Antioch where Christ followers were first called Christians, literally means little Christs, by the way. But why, why were Christians the first Christians called people belonging to the way. Because if Jesus is truth that transformed his disciples, his followers, into a new way of life, we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and it never have any effect on our lives until we understand that truth is just not something I believe, but a way that I live out what I believe. That's the difference between belief and faith. Faith is the cooperation of God's action and our actions and the integration of what we believe with the way we live our lives. So, do you believe 
or rather, who do you say that I am? And if the answer comes back, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then ladies and gentlemen, shouldn't that affect the way we live? And how we carry out mission, or even if we do carry out mission? And is it possible, and forgive me for this, this is not in my notes, if we don't live out mission, and if we don't live out the way that Jesus showed us, do we really truly believe? Let me move on while I'm still, nothing's thrown at me. And come to our third pillar of our vision. Next generation. Meeting the relevant generational needs of our community and church while recognizing the next generation is essential for our future. Children's ministry is not about babysitting. It's more authentic than that. It's about discipleship and the faith formation of the little ones at their level. Youth ministry is not about keeping students happy and entertained or their parents. It's about discipleship and faith formation. Young adult ministry is not about reaching out to the college and careers and the university age young adults so they don't drift away from faith or they, don't, or they stop coming to church. No, it's about discipleship and faith formation. And so when we talk about next generation, we're talking about the church, this church, becoming a place of faith formation. Where our practices include loving and embracing and supporting our young by inviting them into and helping them encounter the living God. I want to finish with this. There are two texts in the Bible that stand out to me in this regard. The first one is Psalm chapter 71, verse 18. And it says this in the ESV. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, it's a prayer, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation and your power to all those to come. Now, the King James says something a little bit differently, and I like the King James here, and this is what the King James says of the same verse. Now, also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, and I'm getting there, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Now, I like the King James because the King James says, first of all, that we have a responsibility to this generation, whatever generation we are part of, those of us alive in the room will say. I love the statement about David. In Acts chapter 13, it says, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. You and I are to serve the purposes of God in this generation, the King James tells us. But secondly, 
that we have a responsibility to the next generation. To everyone that is to come. In other words, everyone that is to come is the next generation coming after me, whether they're alive in the room or they're not yet born. That's the next generation. Now, the other thing that stands out here and is most significant is what we are to proclaim to the next generation. We're not to just proclaim anything. This is what we're told we are to complain. We are to declare your might and your power. Jesus, as the hope of the world and the hope of the church and the hope of this church, but Jesus is also the hope of this generation and he is the hope of the next generation. Times are changing, but Jesus is unchanging. So for those of us who are 30 years of age and older, do you or did you have anyone from a previous generation, somebody older than you, who spoke into your life? An older person who took you under their wing, who mentored you, who poured into your life, who just noticed you and cared about you, encouraged you and prayed for you. For all of us that are over 30, can you think of somebody who did something like that in your life? Raise your hand. Me too. Now think about them for a minute. Their name. Remember their face. And if your experience with that person who invested in your life is anything like mine, it profoundly affected you. How many of you remember the popular story from a decade ago of the boy and the starfish? This boy is walking, alongside the, be walking along the beach and the tide has gone out. And scattered all over the beach are these starfish. And the little boy is picking up starfish and flinging them into the ocean. And he picks up another one and flings it into the ocean. And another one and flings it into the ocean. Like a frisbee. And a man comes along and says to the little boy, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm throwing starfish back into the ocean that have been stranded on the beach. And the man said, look across the beach. Do you see how many starfish are on the beach? I mean, what kind of an impact do you think you're going to have? And the little boy picked up another starfish and said, it matters to this one. Where do we start with the next generation? With one child. With one teenager with one young adult at a time. And only time will reveal in their lives as in our lives who or what kind of person they became and the, and the impact that they had. 
You take all the children downstairs with Pastor Sherry. You take all the students that attend the youth ministry and are in this room and throughout this building and all the young adults in the room. Ladies and gentlemen, we have no idea who, are, who they are going to become and what kind of impact they're going to have. And that's why we need to invest our lives into the next generation one at a time to start because it matters to this one. Stand with me. Father, you are faithful. Oh, you are faithful. You are faithful when we don't even know you're faithful. And Lord, I pray that you would allow us to carry this week Jesus' question. Who do you say the Son of Man is? Who do I say the Son of Man is? Who do we say the Son of Man is? And our answer should determine our lifestyle. And Father, every one of us at this moment, probably all of us, or the bulk of us anyway, have a name and have a face and can still hear some of the words that someone from an older generation spoke into our lives and helped us and mentored us and encouraged us and prayed for us and spoke words of life to us. Father, if we are over 30, Find us faithful to do the same for the next generation. May you put in our minds right now a face, a name. It could be somebody in the room. It could be somebody far away. But in our world of communication, distance is not a problem. Give us a name, a face, a person. Or open our eyes and our minds over this week and show us somebody younger than us from the next generation whose life we can encourage because it matters. And it matters because of who you are. And so we give you praise and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.